This is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. Let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied, unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways, peaceful and calm, wise and skillful, not proud and demanding in nature. Let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove. Wishing in gladness and in safety, may all beings be happy. Whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting them, the great or the mighty, medium, short or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born, may all beings be happy. Let none deceive another or despise any being in any state. Let none through anger wish harm upon another, even as her mother protects with her life, her child, her only child, so with the boundless heart should one cherish all living beings, radiating kindness, over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outward and unbounded, free from hatred and ill will, whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness, one should sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding by not holding to false views. The pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision, being freed from all sense desires, is not born again into this world. Okay, you start the meditation. Start by getting into our meditation posture. 
stop by bringing up the qualities of the Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha. Buddha, the pure one, the one who knows. Dharma, his teaching, the Sangha, his community. This is like the island in the heart. It's free from difficulty. And bring up our intention to practice. But we just don't want to be one who wastes time. Practice is important. Mindfulness is important. Carefulness is important. Following after the hindrances, that's ordinary. It doesn't lead us anywhere. Now's the time to put forth right effort, right energy, in a balanced and harmonious way, either too low or too high, but even. Have a sense of inspiration in the Dhamma. Just tranquility to the body. Just calming down the various parts of the body. The tendency towards moving, getting involved, worrying about the body. Just relax. The tips of the hair of the head to the soles of the feet. Various parts and then back up again. Just take our time. If we don't have any tranquility in the body and the eyes, how do we expect the mind to calm down? We first have to start with coarse things. It's like a very soft, slow wave moving through the body, bringing tranquility, bringing ease. sensitive to how things actually are, right here in the present.
softness or tranquility, calmness. Very comfortable, very at ease. Now the body is sufficiently calmed down. Just accept any lingering feelings as they are, welcoming allowing, being friends with. You don't need things to be perfect, just accept it. So they too become tranquil as they are. They're not going to react, not going to get involved. We're going to create more work for ourselves. Just let the body be tranquil. Okay with it as it is. Not averse to anything. Kaya Pasadi, tranquility of the body. And tranquilize the eyes. Much tension can be felt in the eyes. I'm sensitive to the eyes. The muscles connecting the eyes, the optical nerve. Just relax the eyes. Symbolically, the eyes are the place of either hindrance or vision. Seven factors of awakening are the five niwarana, blindness or vision. Just relax the eyes, any lingering tendencies. Eyes relaxed. Just become aware of the breath for a little bit. Tranquilize the in-breath, tranquilize the out-breath. The same tranquility. Allowing the breath to be tranquil, calm and at ease. A very natural way.
tasted a bit of tranquility. Body and the eyes are sufficiently relaxed and calm. Let's turn our attention to the mind, the mental state, and all the various thoughts and moods and everything that come along. And just see how there's this mind of peace, or there's the mind going outside and getting involved with things. So if there's any flowing out, into irritation or anger, desire, the sense objects, sight, sound, smells, taste, touch, or any dullness and drowsiness, restlessness and worry, or doubts, doubting the method, doubting the Buddha, just doubts, uncertainties. Any of these things, if the mind is flowing out into the world, then we just give that flow up. We don't want to follow these things, because they don't lead anywhere. We've been there, we've done that, there's nothing there for us. We give up these outflows to the world is asavas. Just let the mind be with the mind, the heart be with the heart, neutral, empty and free, not landing or being involved with anything. Sabai, sabai. Gentle, the kind and enduring patience, the studious attention, even and calm, we're able to relinquish objects and thoughts, sense objects as they arise, we're able to drop things, come back to peace, come back to this island in the heart. Now we can say we've established some mindfulness. Now we bring up our meditation object that we have inspiration in, such as the in-breath and the out-breath. 
Buddha. And we're we're diligent in that. We're very calm, regulated in a harmonious way. Wishing for our own welfare. May we be happy and free from suffering. May we learn to perfect our mindfulness and sticking to and picking up and holding to our meditation object. Seeing if we can find some delight in just this simple attention of being with our object. Delightful to be with it. Delightful to follow after it. It's delightful to be uninterested in everything else. Solely devoted to this one thing.
Anatta, Brahma Anatta, Sangha Anatta, Buddha, Buddha, Dhamma, Dhamma, Sangha, Sangha, Dhamma Salamitta, Dhamma Salamitta, Dhamma Salamitta, Dhamma Salakruna, Dhamma Salakruna, Dhamma Salakruna, Dhamma Salamitta, Dhamma Salamitta, You see how we are after half an hour of meditation. causes, the action and its result, its effect. Sometimes we taste profound peace, profound stillness. Sometimes it's just the lessening of defilement. People with busy minds might notice space between the thoughts, easier to drop things. We just have to notice where we're at how our practice is going, and the taste of peace, the taste of contentment, the taste of dropping difficulties and defilements, the taste of picking up and holding to and sustaining our meditation in a wholesome way. have a sense of gratitude to ourselves for the willingness to practice. And gratitude to the Buddha, Dhamma Sangha, for all these things that roll down to us. And gratitude for our efforts, however small or great. It's thankful and grateful heart. And those who wish may continue to be with their object during the talk. And those who wish may now end the meditation. Recollection of peace is important. Like one of the talks that Stephen gave me at one point was the Puteds, uh, recollection of Upasana, of this taste of calmness and peace that's close to Nibbana. So I have to see, like, like Lumpur Cha said, if you grab a ball of molten lava 
hot red metal. It's going to be hot on the top, hot on the bottom, it's hot on the sides, it's hot on the front, it's hot on the back, it's hot all over. There's nowhere that it's not hot. So that's like suffering. So when we have suffering, we have suffering in the morning, we have suffering at noon, we have suffering in the evening, we have suffering at night, we have suffering all over. So this is why we need to develop peace, because peace is like an antidote to suffering. So when we have a moment of peace, we have a moment that's close to Nibbāna, because that's a moment where suffering has ceased, even if it's just a temporary ceasing. It's just that kind of taste of peace, that's, that's still excellent, even though it's just, just a mini Nibbāna, it's a tiny taste of Nibbāna. It's a taste of peace, it's a taste of freedom of suffering. It's leading us in the right direction. When we come to the teachings, it's like we have to learn to be an apprentice, as, as I always say. We can't, it's like anybody, whether they're a carpenter or a goldsmith or a silversmith or and somebody who makes arrows for archery or whatever, you don't just suddenly do that. You know, you, you, have, you become an apprentice, you have to learn that trade. And so when to begin with, unless you're just born with natural parami and you practice a lot in previous lives, you know, the majority of people, the 99.9% .9 is difficult. It takes a lot of work and effort. And so you have to start where you're at. And like Lumpur Cha said, if, you know, if you want to make it something out of a tree, it's not easy. First you've got to chop the tree down, then you've got to take off the bark, then you've got to plane the wood and get the planks out of it, then you can build something out of it. So it takes a lot of work. So to be an apprentice to meditation, to be an apprentice to peace, to be an apprentice to those teachings that lead to Nibbāna, it's not easy. We have to be patient, we have to be willing to go against the tendencies of our mind, the tendencies that just lead us into useless things. Remembering people in the world, yes, you, know, you have to work, you have to uh, do things in order to survive. But then the Buddha would teach generosity, the Buddha would teach the precepts, the Buddha would teach bhavana. Because while we're doing things, we can still be cultivating good mental states, we can still be recollecting the Buddha's teachings. And when we have like work to do, then at Lumpur too we said, we should have industry in that. So whatever we do, if we've got a, we see a dirty mark on when we're mopping the floor, then scrub hard. You know, so you put your heart into everything. And that heart that puts its heart into whatever it's doing, at that time we're only developing wholesome qualities. At that time, we're only we're, we're close to the Dhamma because we're literally putting our heart into being a true person, to being uh, good at the things that we do. And you know, meditation and generosity and bhavana and precepts; these things are not easy to realize. You know, some, a lot of people, it's going to take many lifetimes to develop these things. It doesn't just happen overnight. But the Buddha didn't want people to be lazy, so he always encouraged people to really get on with the work in this life. To see that death can come at any moment. 
and we will all die. And this is certainly true. And so if we have this understanding of death close at hand, then we will live in a way that is befitting of a disciple of the Buddha, of a present of a uh, apprentice of the Buddha, because you know, if if we die and then we've just wasted our time, we're just going to be stuck in suffering and defilement and difficulties. So we use the peace of our practice. We use the generosity. We use the sila to see into uh, the Buddha's teachings, to see into old age. You know, so we don't become infatuated with youth. We see that old age is a part of life. We see we don't become infatuated with birth. You know, we see that death will come. We don't become infatuated with health and 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 always being free from sicknesses and having everything as we want it in the body. We see that the body degenerates. That sickness is a part of life. And with our favorite possessions, you know, we always contemplate the other side of it. Yes, like Gumpur Chah said, if you have a glass, take care of it. You know, the glass can last a long time. But at the same time, you should contemplate that it's impermanent, that it has a crack in it. That one day, the glass will crack. One day, the pen will go. One day, you know, the chair will break. You know, the door will fall apart. The house will be bulldozed. Whatever it is, it's, it's impermanent. It's not going to last forever. And and if we keep these thoughts in mind, then when change occurs, when people die, when people get sick, when disaster occurs, we're ready for it. We understand. Oh yes, you know this is this is nature arising, nature persisting, and nature ceasing. This is what happens with nature. This is what nature is. So we don't get fooled by Mara, we don't get lost in these stories that some disaster is occurring and some terrible thing that shouldn't be happening is occurring. Because, you know, when we were born, who did we bring with us? When we die, who do we take with us? What possessions did we come into this world with? What possessions do we take with us? So if we can't be, bring anybody in with us, take anybody with us, if we can't bring anything in, in with us or take anything out with us, then it shows you the limits of this material existence. That in and of itself, earth, water, fire, wind, it's just arising, persisting, changing and ceasing. Arising, persisting, changing and ceasing. But then when we add the mind element to it, you know, this thing called cause and effect. Kama and Wapaka, are literally action and the result of action. So when we choose an action, it comes with our intention, it comes with our quality of mindfulness, and then when when we actually do that action, when we have a volition, when, when we have the will to act, whether consciously or through a reactive tendency, at that moment we act with intention. And then with that action comes the result. So this is like when we give. So say a lay person is giving to a monk in, into their bowl some food, then you know shouldn't be talking at that time, shouldn't be focused on other things. You put your mind solely on the idea of giving, of purity of giving, and then that monk should, for example, have their mind focused on receiving or focused on their practice. So then you're getting both beings focused on the highest intention, both beings 
focused on the highest action and, and so it will occur to the be able to enable the highest result. And, and so this is why intention is a part of Buddhism. It's not just, it's like when we bow, if we bow to the Buddha Dharma Sangha, the Buddha statues are just a symbol, but we treat it like the Buddha, so it will arouse mindfulness in us. So, so we remember to bring up it's an opportunity for us, like for example, the seven point bow that we do on the floor. You know, that's a that's that's because that's the the special bow of that gives rise to the highest karma. And and so learning to bow properly, learning to do these things with intention or our chanting, learning to have our mind with these things, these are all ways of creating kusala karmas. Kusala dhammas in the heart, uh, wholesome qualities in the heart, wholesome thoughts, wholesome moods, wholesome actions. And these are the kind of things that lead us upwards. And, and so the idea of learning to become a, an apprentice to the Dhamma just means we just have to see what is useful to us. You know, as we get older and, and we're in difficult situations, in good situations, are we learning? Are, are we growing? Are we evolving in a good way? So uh, it doesn't really matter how long it takes us if we have a good attitude, if we're doing our best. So it doesn't matter what other people do, it doesn't matter if bad things are going on in the world, but we just always try and look at other people with a heart of respect, with a heart of humility and kindness, with a heart of metta. The metta of the Buddha is not this kind of worldly kindness. Worldly kindness, it doesn't really know itself. Worldly kindness is that you just want praise, you just want to say nice things and hear nice things all the time. But that's, that's just praise and blame and, and the eight worldly wins. And so in Buddhism, metta isn't just saying nice things, metta is actually looking out for the welfare of oneself and others. And so this is why the Buddha said we should have wise friends, we should show ourselves as we really are to the wise among us. And so if we have a fault, we can share it with a friend. If we have, you know, good qualities, we can help other people with those. So we're not doing it out of any kind of conceit, we're not doing it, not saying that we're perfect or anything, but we're just doing it as a way to be like a mirror of the Dhamma that we're trying to lead ourselves and other people to higher qualities, to reflect more qualities of the Buddha. And, and the Buddha's simile for metta is like a mother or a nurse looking after a child. And then they lose their attention and, and they're not looking after the child and the child swallows a stick. Now what do you think? Would that mother or the nurse crook back the child's throat and put, you know, their finger down there and draw out that stick even if they drew blood? Of course they would. And why would they do it? They're doing it out of kindness. So that's actually the Buddha's simile for what metta is, what benevolence is. So it's nothing to do with making everybody feel nice. It's about with what is the actual tension behind it. Your intention is that you don't want that child to die. You're looking out for their welfare. 
You, know, you have love in your heart. And so the action sometimes in life, we may have to say or do difficult things. But if the intention is meta, then we're looking out for the welfare of that friend. We're pointing out a fault or something difficult that isn't, may not be easy for them to see. And of course, we need to know the right time and place for this. But a true friend would be able to do that. A true friend would be able to put down their desire to want praise from their friend. And they would do something even though their friend might not like it. So that's what metta actually is. The Buddha, if you look at the Buddha's speech, you know, sometimes he would tell the monks the things that they didn't want to hear. But you have to be wise at finding the right time to say things. So, you know, the skill in how we actually speak or finding the right time. But for some people it's difficult because it goes against the tendency of, of what one wants to do. Generally people want to only ever hear praise and they never want to hear blame, you know. They only want for pleasure, they never want for suffering. They only want for wealth, you know, they never want for <laughs> lack of wealth. They only want for success, they never want for failure. And so you just have to see that all those kind of things, praise and blame, pleasure and pain, gain and loss, success and failure, these are just the winds that blow us around. And so it's fine to be successful. It's fine to be good at the things that we, we do. But we understand there's a limit to these things. When you die, at least then the success is going to end because that thing is over with. And, 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 and also, so in this contemplation of metta, uh, we learn to see what is actually for our spiritual welfare. You know, how can we grow as an apprentice in the Dharma? How can we let help our other friends in the Dharma grow in the Dharma. And then so we have this like honest and open uh, Sangha, community of the Buddha that is pointing to the Buddha's teachings. Because everything grows out of the Dhamma. Everything grows out of the Buddha's teachings. And so all of what Venerable Sariputta said grew out of the Dhamma of the Buddha. And, and, and so by rooting ourselves in those things, even if sometimes we get it wrong, even if when we contemplate, maybe we don't always get it right. But if we keep coming back to the Buddha, if we keep coming back to the practice, then it's like honing down a knife on a sharpening stone. You know, a very fine uh, work that has to be done and, and the stages that go to it. And then so eventually the tool will become sharp, eventually. The wisdom will be sharp enough to actually be of use to us. And so it's not, not impossible to, uh, to bring this apprenticeship to fulfillment. So uh, that was a little Dharma talk. I wonder if there was any questions about anything this evening. <laughs> and just a trip down south. Trip down south, yes. It's very good. Yeah, I spent two months, two months in the forest, and um, yeah, that's one thing about Western Australia. It's amazing seclusion the forests we have here. So one of the, the last place I was in was a three-hour walk to the closest little village. And the place before I stayed in Nanak was about an hour walk out of town. And so, 
you know, when you're living in seclusion, you really get the opportunity. Uh, I can see why the Buddha praised uh, living in seclusion. And, and so I got to uh, enjoy that. And, um, and the useful thing of living on your own is you don't have anybody to talk to. You don't have, you know, your duties is just cleaning around your your little area and looking after your possessions and then you're able to um, go about your practice. So, so it's a, sometimes in monasteries there's a little bit more to do. So I found it uh, very beneficial. And also, you know, as Buddhists we believe it is heavenly beings live in the trees. So you're in this environment that uh, feels very special. <laughs> So, um, yeah, it's a good time. Mm. Any questions? Okay. So we have Mother Puja on Sunday, yesterday. So that was the, the second, second biggest Buddhist day of the year. That's when all the Arahants came together seven months after the Buddha's enlightenment. And, and so I gave a little talk on that yesterday. But yes, yeah, so I think it's good to learn about the roots of Buddhism and the moon observance days. Because the Buddha again and again talks about these things. So if we can make those lunar observance days special days, you know, Saka, ruler of the gods, is a Sotapanna now. He, he realized the first stage of enlightenment at the time of the Buddha. And so, you know, all of his ministers actually come down, send the suttas, they come down on these lunar observance days and actually see who's practicing and who's not. So if you want a bit of oomph in your practice, then that's, that's the day to really practice. And... Um, and even if it's just on that day, you know, observing the precepts and just, you know, focusing on the, on the Dhamma, then I think it's nice because they're the days that uh, many other people around the world are practicing as well. So, um, And then, um, well, just a few skillful means. So, contemplating death, contemplating spiritual urgency, like the, like death. Just contemplate the in breath and the out breath. You know, because if we're all going to die, that's for sure. Then, what are we thinking about? What's what's really important? You know, if you, if you can really put your mind on death. And whatever problems you have, no matter what they are, they're going to vanish. They're not important. They're quite small, actually. And, uh, and so death is, you know, an excellent meditation thing to regularly contemplate, particularly when you see the mind proliferating, because uh, it will cut through everything. 
and the breath is very good because the breath cuts out thinking and, and leads to delight and ease. And, and so learning the 16, the first four parts of the 16 phases of breath meditation or even going through the 16, you know, is, is very useful. And then elements, you know, just every now and then start to see people as just the elements. You know, break your attachment to the label of these people. They're just like a clump of earth going past. It's like a clump of foam going past. And then, because that's closer to truth than actually seeing these permanent people walking past us. Because we have all this delusion associated with what we see. And, um, and then some way, a spiritual urgency. So the Buddha literally taught the monks to practice as if our head was on fire, or our clothes were on fire. Now do you think if your head or your clothes were on fire, you'd be like, oh, I don't really feel like practicing at the moment. <laughs> Maybe I'll go do something else. You just let your clothes burn and your head burn, and, or you know, feel drowsy, or let your mind wander off to other thoughts. No, you'd be right there trying to put the fire out. <laughs> Nothing else would be important. You know, and so just just walk your meditation for five minutes with your head on fire and, and, and see what it's actually like. Because that's the kind of training that will actually give rise to seeing what the what Samwager actually is, that this is something very important. And it's not a game, you know, it can't be done lightly. And, and, and that suffering is here right with us. It's just that we get stuck in our stories, we get stuck in our moods. And so we have to learn to flip things over and see the other side of it. Because, mm -hmm. yes. talking about the other side, mm -hmm. how do you rationale the death of a 16 year old girl by shark attack? You know, you well, I mean, you can die in many ways. So it's just, just death. Sometimes it's accident, sometimes it's karma, sometimes you're just in the wrong place at the wrong time. And there's, there's many reasons for these things, but at the end of the day, birth was the problem. When she was born, she was going to die. So at any moment we can die for any number of reasons. So it could have been a crocodile, she could have tripped and cracked her head open, she could have fallen in the shower, you know, she, she could have had a heart attack or a brain aneurysm, uh, you know, somebody could have stabbed or shot her, like any number of ways to die. But however we die, uh, you know, what qualities of goodness have we developed while we're alive? So now she's dead. Now she will fare according to her actions. So in Buddhism, rather than worrying about death, what we do is we live in a way where we're preparing ourselves to die. And then we try and encourage our loved ones and, and those we know to also live in a wise way. Because there is action and the result of action, and so we can see that simply through our own actions. We can learn that there is a result to action. So if there is a result to action, then it's not such a great leap to think that after death, then those results still continue. You know, so uh, she was young, so probably hadn't got too much too many volitions and things yet, so she'll probably pick up another birth quite quite easily, like we don't know what people's come up, but, but um, you know, usually the older we get and the, and the more confusion and difficulties we have in our lives, then it's harder to let go and move on. 
But uh, if we were to worry about the 7 billion people in the planet dying over the next uh, 100 years, that would be a lot of suffering. So, so the Buddha just says, like these handful of leaves. So just pick up one of these leaves and contemplate it. So this body is enough. If we understood this body, if we understood this death, like Ajahn Chah said, die before you die. You know, so contemplate ourselves dying. So now we've seen that lady die. Now we say, well, if she's going to die, I'm going to die. That could have been me. That could have been my neighbor. That could have been my doctor. That could have been my friend. We're all of this nature. Death can come at any moment. And so we take that single leaf and, and, and we apply it to all of the different uh, permutations of our experience so we can see clearly the knowledge that's in that one leaf. That was put into context then, doesn't it? Sorry? That was put into context. Yeah. And then, then you say, 16 year old, that's just life. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so we can use these things. It's good when we see something difficult like that, if, because if, usually what happens is people have affection for young people. So, so then their affection kicks in and then they say, that's wrong, that shouldn't happen. And, but Ajahn Chah said, well, it would be more appropriate to actually cry when people were born and be happy when they die. Because when they're born, we know they're going to die. And, and when they die, well, they're, now they're getting some peace, you know, the, the, the end, end of the suffering of the human existence, or something like that that he said. So this idea, but it's difficult to see the Dhamma. So this is why, you know, when we see a sick person, when we see an old person, when we see somebody die, when, when, when there's affection and there's reaction, that's where we have to catch that and we see that we don't, at that moment we're not thinking in line with Dharma. So then we take that object up and we contemplate it in line with Dharma. Or we remember it and then later on in the day or in the evening, then we contemplate that in line with Dharma. So we use our experience to teach ourselves. Because then our sights, sounds, smells, taste, touch and thoughts, then they actually become good Dhamma rather than bad Dhamma. Because the world's always just going on and on and on. But if we take the time to contemplate in line with Dhamma, then that wisdom will lead to peace. That peace will lead to wisdom and, and, and we'll be on the right path. Nothing like a life insurance policy. <laughs> what, the it's called, it's called the, dhamma, the, the true life insurance policy is just practicing the Dhamma. Mm. So. What's the one thing you sure knows? You're going to die. It's just when. Yeah. Yeah. Having been born, we all die. And what's the point of having one anyway? Because you did. <laughs> <laughs> okay. We'll leave it there. <clears throat> Now let us chant the verses of sharing and aspiration. Through the goodness that arises from my practice, may my spiritual teachers and guides of great virtue, my mother, my father, and my relatives, the sun and the moon, and all virtuous leaders of the world, the highest gods and evil forces, celestial beings, guardian spirits of the earth, and the Lord of death. May those who are friendly 
indifferent or hostile, may all beings receive the blessings of my life. May they soon attain the three focus and realize the deathless. Through the goodness that arises from my practice, and through this act of sharing, may all desires and attachments quickly cease, and all harmful states of mind, until I realize Nibbana, in every kind of birth, may I have an upright mind, with mindfulness and wisdom, austerity and vigor, may the forces of delusion not take hold, nor weaken my resolve. The Buddha is my excellent refuge, unsurpassed is the protection of the Dharma. The solitary Buddha is my noble Lord, the Sangha is my supreme support. Through the supreme power of all these, may darkness and delusion be dissolved. Yata varivaha pura pariparanti sagarang evang evaitautinang petanang opakapati chitang patitang tong hankipamewa Samaeja to Sabe Parantu Sangapa Chandu Panara so Yata Manicho Tira so Yata Svitya Viva Chantu Sabaro Kovina Satuma Te Pawantara Dana Siri Sani Chang Uta Pachayino Chataro Damawatanti Hayuano Sukang Good evening, Dama. To you all.